This is Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, editor of Tradition. Here we are, days before the arrival of Passover. If we're not drowning in cleaning products, chances are we're doing the important, perhaps more important work of reflecting on the Exodus story in advance of Seder night. A highlight of this week's observances is the recounting of the biblical 10 plagues. In an interesting new book, Dr. Jeremy Brown considers the 11th plague, a kind of catch-all phrase he uses to explore how Jews as a people and Judaism as a religious community and tradition have encountered and responded to plagues, disease, and pandemics from the Bible right up to our own days of COVID-19. Dr. Jeremy Brown is the director of the Office of Emergency Care Research at the National Institutes of Health. He's a physician and a historian of science and medicine. In our winter 2021 issue, we featured his essay, The Plague Wedding, which was republished as a chapter in his most recent book, The Eleventh Plague, Jews and Pandemics from the Bible to COVID-19 from Oxford University Press. The Tradition podcast recently caught up with Brown to talk about his work, traditional Jewish responses to plague and disease, and more generally, his assessment of how Jewish thought and halachic tradition have responded over time to such occurrences, and how we fared during the most recent pandemic. Jeremy considers the long arc of history, and does so through the prisms of theology, halakha, ritual, and folk custom, some admittedly bizarre, including the so-called Schwarzachasana, or plague wedding, about which he wrote in our pages, an article you can find in the archives of traditiononline.org. He balances this with the insights and wisdom drawn from history, epidemiology, medical science, sociology, public policy, and more. Dr. Jeremy Brown, welcome to the Tradition Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. In our winter 2021 issue, Tradition published your essay, The Plague Wedding, which tells a very, very bizarre story, which we're going to get into uh, uh, momentarily, but we were delighted to see that that chapter was included with lots of other material in this very, uh, very heavy book. It's a, you get a good, a good workout, just picking it up, The 11th Plague, Jews and Pandemics from the Bible to COVID-19. So first of all, just tell us the meaning of this title. What is the 10 plagues we know? It's, 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 our, it's the season that we're in right now. What's the 11th plague? So the 11th plague in the book is really a stand-in for the multitude of pandemics that have faced the Jewish people and shaped our culture uh, and our liturgy and our tefillot um, and shaped that um, that followed the 10 plagues. So I use it as a sort of a placeholder, whether that be bubonic plague in the book of, of Shmuel, whether that be bubonic plague in the Middle Ages, whether that be cholera that decimated the uh, the Jewish communities along with the rest of the population in uh, in uh, in Eastern Europe, whether that eleventh plague be smallpox and the amazing story of the early Jewish uh, acceptance of the new smallpox vaccine, and indeed up to this day, where the eleventh plague that we faced was COVID. With COVID, so uh, since we are talking about plagues, and since we are. Our listeners are, are are with us now on the on the eve of uh, Passover, and we'll all be spilling out a drop of wine with the recitation of each of the ten plagues as a way of recognizing that even 
when these uh, traumas are visited on our on our enemies, we uh, we don't uh, celebrate and uh, and and rejoice. We're mindful of the suffering of all people. But nevertheless, with some historical distance between us and those biblical events, uh, your your first chapter opens with a bit of whimsy. A little bit of gloating yes. might be permitted. You write. It's yes, now possible I, to I... buy ten plagues, finger puppets. Endless fun for kids and family. Ten plagues, nail decals. Why is this manicure different from all other manicures? But in reality, when we get up close to such traumas, or when the traumas get close to us, as you know, as they did three years ago, we were all in lockdown. Uh, you in North America, we here in Israel, and the world over, and and you know, we can remember just three short years ago that first that first COVID Pesach where. Uh, you know, the the elderly, widows, widowers, other people that were alone had Passover, sometimes the first time in 80, 90 years, celebrated the holiday all by themselves. Uh, you know, what 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 bigger plague could we imagine than, of course, all of the, the, the suffering and the, the loneliness and the economic upheaval and all the things that COVID visited upon us during these past three years. And when you get up close to it, when it affects you, it's a little harder to be... Uh, be quite so uh, whimsical about it, but 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 take us back. The first biblical set of plagues, of course, are the the ten that were visited upon upon the Egyptians, and you use this as a way to get into the conversation of what you're doing and trying to unpack the theology and the history and the contemporary science that that is sometimes used uh, both by people that are within the tradition and people that stand outside of religious tradition to understand different historical records uh, that are brought about. And it's part of the interesting thing that you do in this book. And, and if I can commend to our to our readers some of your, your other books uh, uh, that, you, that you wrote a few years ago, you wrote a book about the, um, about the 1918 uh, pandemic, uh, and, and that may have been you know, just a, a year before people were ready to start thinking about uh, pandemics. Yeah. And then your your excellent book about uh, Jewish, what's the right word? Cosmography. Jewish responses to Copernicus. Jewish responses to Copernicus. Uh, this way that you kind of tie together in all of your writing, all of these very, very disparate fields, uh, science and religion and theology and history and et cetera, to help us understand something that was then, by Amim Hohem, and also as it might have reference today. So, so tell us a little bit how you use these, the, the original 10 plagues to, uh, to kind of get into sure. this. Yeah, so the original 10 plagues are, of course, the ones that we are, with which we are all familiar. And it was after them that I made the book, The 11th Plague. But when you, when you jump into the 10 plagues, uh, they are only part of the story of pandemics that are in the Torah and in Tanakh in general. So Sefer Bamidbar, for example, is, uh, has four separate uh, recorded events that were some kind of, of magefa, or in one instance, they actually, it's actually, the Torah describes it as a makkah. Uh, this occurs actually in the 11th chapter when the Jewish people are complaining that they remembered the fish and the cucumbers and the melons that were offered all to the them that they, could, they could eat in England. Yeah, all the tasty treats. And and that was 
definitely the wrong thing to do. The food was still unchewed in their teeth and God said to plague. Uh, a very severe plague. Now, it's very interesting that in this example, the word makah is used and not the more the slightly more common word magefa, which describes the other three uh, plagues in the book of Bamidbar. And uh, makah, of course, is the way that Kodesh Baruch Hu reminds us of what he did. Hiketi kolbachob eretz mitrayim. I, I, uh, I smote every firstborn. And here, in a very clever way, by using the word makah, when the Jewish people are complaining and, and being whimsical about their time in Egypt, Torah is telling us that they were then uh, reprimanded in an extremely uh, uh, severe way for certain um, that they, they lusted after the food in Egypt and so they were smitten with some form of death, a makad, just as the Egyptians were. Uh, but there are two, three other um, examples in Sefer Bamidbar. We have the Magefa that followed the, uh, the, the spies in Parsha Shalach. We have the Magefa that occurred after the uh, rebellion of Korach uh, and the violent um, Makkah uh, that's described at the end of uh, Balak when uh, Pinchas um, stabbed uh, Pinchas stabbed the, uh, the, the Pinchas stabbed the, um, uh, those who went whoring and, um, and then the Torah tells us that that it was that particular uh, you know, that particular intervention of Pinchas, that ended that plague. So we have the 10 plagues, which are commonly known, I think. We have the four plagues, which now that I've described them, can be seen as, as a unit, I think. Uh, and then we have, of course, the plagues in the, uh, specifically, I look at the plague in the book of Shmuel, uh, the plague of Ashdod, uh, which is described in great detail and um, has a, as it takes on a fascinating history of its own in its uh, translations during the Middle Ages. Right. So I think the 10 plagues is, is really a springboard for us to uh, for us to sort of think about how, how, how our people, how our nation really began built out of the cauldron of plagues and pandemics. And it's precisely because of pandemics that we obtained our initial freedom as a people. One of the things that you do in in uh, in those chapters is to survey uh, contemporary biblical or historical scholarship. Again, not all of which is situated, let's say, within our Beit Midrash. Uh, that bring all types of speculative, uh, scientific theorizing about uh, on the presumption that there were in fact waves of plagues that hit ancient Egypt. What might have caused them? what natural phenomena might have caused them and to even so going so far as to speculate why uh, whatever it was that turned the Nile red then led to a plague of frogs and led to a plague of insects, et cetera, et cetera. So, so beyond the, you know, just beyond your own intellectual wide ranging intellectual curiosity, uh, your own, uh, you know, I, I guess full disclosure here, you, you and I are friends. Uh, I, I've been to your home. I've seen your library. I know exactly how wide ranging your your interests and your reading habits are. Beyond you know your own intellectual pursuit to uh, you know know everything that's been written on the topic that interests you, um, what insights do we gain? Uh, we approach the biblical text principally as Tvar Hashem, 
the word of God. We sit at the Seder night, ki'ilu anachnu yatsanu mimitzrayim, to relive the, the Exodus. We pour out those drops of wine because we're imagining that we are witness to the plagues brought by God's outstretched arm. What further insights? In what way are we more edified by turning to that bookshelf that offers these types of scientific yeah. or historical yeah. theorizing? How does that, in your own mind, in the, your own genesis of, of writing and thinking well, and I think it's a, how do these it, things come together? Yeah, it's a terrific question because, as you said, we have uh, one story uh, of these plagues that is told in the Torah, um, and then we have a, a scientific explanation that was has been offered uh, in various ways. None of them are very persuasive or, in my mind, persuasive at all. Uh, but I just want to point out that the, the search for a scientific explanation of the 10 plagues is actually a very from, and one might call it a very orthodox pursuit. And the example I give in the book is uh, that of Rabbi Yehuda Ayash, who lived in Algiers. He served as the rabbi of the city. He eventually makes his way to Yerushalayim. And he wrote a lengthy work, Vizot Yehuda, which was uh, published a little bit after his death, uh, published in Salzburg, in Salzburg in 1776. And this includes a commentary on the Haggadah. And Rabbi Ayash asked, why was it necessary during the plague of Dever for the Torah to tell us that the livestock was smitten in the fields? The Pasuk said, yad Hashem we know that animals live out in the fields. What reason was there for the Torah to tell us that they were in the fields? And, and Rabbi Ayash here reminds us that for, much, for, 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 for many, many centuries... Where, else, where now, else would the cattle be? No, no, no. He, he, yes, correct. Where else would the cattle be? But he reminds us that uh, looking for a scientific explanation, using the best theories of the day, is really a, a very Jewish pursuit. And uh, if I could just share this with you, what Rabbi Ayash suggests is that the plagues were caused to, to a large degree by foul air or what later became called miasmas. Miasma. And miasmas, and miasmas was the theory of uh, what causes what we call today infectious disease. And um, it was the reigning theory uh, for many, many centuries. Uh, you can find stories of uh, its reference uh, and, and alluded to in the Gemara, and basically all until modern germ theory uh, in the 19th century, it was thought that miasmas, poisonous gases that, that come up from the fields and the streams, uh, uh, it, that is the cause of, of illness. And what Rabbi Ayash points out in his commentary is that because that's how plagues happen, with the Torah specifically tells us, when you're standing in a fresh field, far away from any of the poisonous miasmas, you know, you're really outside on the farm, you would expect that there would be no deaths because you were far away from the poisonous miasmas. And that, Rabbi Ayer says, that is the reason that the Torah goes out of its way to tell us that the cattle was in the field, to show you that despite the fact that they were in the field, far away from the source of the plague, the miasma, they were still smitten. So the, and that, the, co and that the cause mind, can't be misascribed to something natural. It can only be correct. understood as the hand of God striking them down. Right. Now, of course, with this, this strikes us today as, as, as rather uh, outdated. Uh, while there is 
some role of miasmas and uh, environmental pollution, we might call it today. But we know that uh, infectious diseases are not caused by, by, by steam and mist rising from, the, from volcanoes and, and so on. But uh, this really gives you an insight, I think, that looking for scientific explanations using the best science of the day to understand the Tsukim and the Torah, to understand the Ten Plagues, to understand the, the, the Haggadah, um, this is really something that is part and parcel of our, of our Jewish heritage. Mm -hmm. uh, briefly, there are a number of theories about those 10 plagues. Uh, Greta Hort in 1957 suggested that it all began, as you said, with silt that washed into the Nile, and that causes it to become overrun with bacteria, and then the frogs hop out, and, yeah. and, and so on, and so on, and so on. Um, and later... Um, Later, there is a mosquito infection, which uh, spreads anthrax, and the cattle die off from anthrax. But what's interesting, she stops after the sixth plague. She can't, she, she herself, in her, in her uh, theorizing, says that the last four plagues were not interconnected. She just couldn't make that connection. There are other theories that um, it wasn't anthrax, but it was a tiny little um, parasite called Trypanosoma evans, that's the cause of a disease called Sura in animals. There's beetles that may have caused it. And one that particularly interested me in our modern times is the uh, suggestion that climate change was the cause of all of these plagues, beginning with the El Nino effect in the Eastern Pacific Ocean, which warms the Mediterranean. And then you get algae blooms in the Nile and so on and so on. A pair of British a volcanologist and archaeologist in the 1940s suggested that there was a volcanic eruption in Central Africa, led which one thing, yeah. led to a... And, 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 and one can go on and on. Um, the, 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 you know, there is no end to, to some of this theorizing. As I said, I have read nearly all of them, I imagine, and really none of them are persuasive at all. Um, I think we... The, they, they really don't add up. Some people in the middle just give up and say, yeah, and I don't know how the last yeah, four were connected. Yeah. But even some of the other uh, supposed connections are, are very, very uh, tenuous at best. Anna, uh, in your introduction, you uh, mentioned that this was actually a project you had undertaken before uh, COVID arrived. And then COVID hastened uh, and focused all of our attention on these topics. But you admit that when you began, you did so with no hypothesis to test. You simply let the sources speak for themselves and any conclusions came later. And then you write, what I uncovered, much to my surprise, was the profoundly deep way in which pandemics have impacted the story of Jews and Judaism. So you set out to kind of tell the story. And of course, chronologically, you begin with the biblical accounts we've been discussing, but then you take us all the way up to our the most contemporary present present day. And along the way, we see cholera in the 19th century. And before that, we see smallpox in the 18th century. And uh, and, and and you name it, there's no end to different uh, plagues that have been visited, of course, not just upon Jews, but, but upon uh, society at large throughout the world, including the areas in which uh, the Jewish people were were dispersed. And when this happens, there's this kind of curious double-edged effect. There's a kind of internal reaction and an external reaction, or perhaps domestic and, and foreign uh, reactions to what's going on from the Jewish perspective. 
On the first hand, I think you remind us of the Gemara and Masechet Ta'anit, which deals at great length with what's the appropriate Jewish, spiritual, religious, theological response to calamities of this sort. Uh, it should be one of prayer, it should be one of fasting, it should be one of uh, searching to both alleviate the suffering of those around us, but also to kind of questioning our ways in order to make things right with God in heaven, uh, because we're interpreting these experiences as some form of divine punishment. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, there's a kind of eye that's open to what's happening in the big world around us, because we're mindful of the fact, and history plays this out, that very often uh, the Jewish people were scapegoated by our uh, the non-Jewish host societies in which we found ourselves, that we were the cause of the plague that was being visited on the village or the country or the, the, the world. Um, and these kind of lead to two very different responses. Uh, one is a kind of internal cheshbon ha-nefesh, uh, stock-taking, and the other is a very, very defensive posture uh, insofar as as the world is concerned. And you treat both of these in two different sections of the book. So so lead us through a bit, or maybe give us some of the highlights of, of each of those uh, areas. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I'm not sure if I would call it defensive posturing, but... Um... But there's certainly needed. There, these well, it's certainly defensive insofar as if a pogrom, if 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 the, if the plague results in a pogrom in which uh, in yeah. which our our neighbors are uh, pressing us, we have to adopt a defensive. Uh... We have to adopt. One of the parts of the book that I'm particularly proud of is the section that I deal with the theology of pandemics. I think it was something that during COVID we really failed to see from our rabbinic thought leaders. Um, certainly. In the modern Orthodox world, there was very little, although there was some response. Um, in the conservative and reform world, there was almost no theological response. And uh, amongst the Haredim, uh, the, the theological response was always, this shows that God controls every last thing to every blade of grass, and who is man to be so haughty? This is the lesson, and we have to govern with more kavana. Uh, none, of, none of these responses are in my understanding, keeping with with Talmudic thought on the question, uh, the Gemara simply uh, says that um, uh, when a plague is unleashed, there is no difference between sinners and saints. Uh, now, you may say, but that means that people die who didn't deserve it. And the answer is yes. That is exactly what the Gemara means. Uh, people sometimes die when they don't deserve it during a pandemic. Because we see this with our own eyes. You can't suggest that everybody who died in a pandemic was deserving of it, and everybody who lived was somehow uh, a great study. Um, so this, pan what I call the pandemic theology, uh, is, is something that I, I really wanted to see. And um, I hadn't seen it um, discussed very much in, uh, at all, really. So, you know, Rav Yosef, who's the author of this uh, of this saying, who uh, who's obviously a, a Babylonian uh, who lived around uh, 320, uh, died around 320. He says, once permission is given to the destroyer to kill, he does not distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. Now, this I think is 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 a very at once both very troubling theologically because 
God controls everything, including the blade of grass that is growing. On the other hand, it's very liberating theologically because you don't have to bend yourself into a pretzel to try and explain to justify why... God's way, how the right. righteous perished right. and the wicked was spared. Now, to be sure and to be fair, this is Rabbi Yosef's opinion, and it's not the opinion of what one might call mainstream Talmudic thinking, in which God is tightly in control of, of everything. Um, but but it does allow us, I think, a glimpse into into a very important um, uh, Amora's insight as to yes, there are the, sometimes the good die young for no reason other than it's a natural thing. So I, I do pay some attention to the theology. I also point out uh, how I think our theological responses change uh, when you compare COVID to what happened with the outbreak of the HIV epidemic, and you can see amongst writing. Predominantly, uh, specifically amongst um, English writers in, in, in what we might call in the modern Orthodox uh, camp, who mostly blamed the victim for HIV, saying words to the effect of, well, you know, you undertake any kind of homosexual behavior, this is kind of what happens. It's just a natural thing. You shouldn't have been doing that. That was, I'm perhaps doing it a little injustice, but that was by and large the response. And I found that those same writers, those, of course, who were still alive for COVID, those same writers never suggested that during the COVID outbreak. They never suggested, well, you know, if you sin, this is the natural response. In fact, they either they mostly ignored it completely. People who had written on the on the uh, during the HIV epidemic of its theological implications st stuck strictly to the halachic implications of COVID. You know, should you be saying Tachnun during Nissan? You know, we've got Rosh Chodesh, uh, you know, as we record this is a few days away. Should you be saying tach, uh, Tachnun because we normally don't say it during this month, but it's a terrible month. If you if you, if you remember back to those first few months of, of COVID and that first Pesach. So we had a deep halachic response, but we did not see. And I think this is this is a, a, a real shame. We did not see mm -hmm. any kind of theological response, other than I said, as I said, amongst the ultra-Orthodox whose response was, we have to do Trevor, we have to Dove and Harbour, uh, right. and, and so on. Um, and so that, that's one, one big change. So that's sort of the, right. uh, the internal discussion that we have, and it's an ongoing discussion. And as I say, it's not just the Orthodox who failed to discuss this. You would think that amongst the conservative and reform movements, there would be a discussion of the theological implications of God's hand in a world that just seems so unjust. People were surely asking about this, and yet those movements too failed, as far as I can tell, uh, to respond with any kind of theological um, discussion. Um, there was a, a book published which uh, does it, which was uh, uh, a very uh, interesting book on, on modern responses to pandemics, and that small book um, was uh, did contain some of this theological discussion but it was but not enough it, to it, your it, taste you say not, not enough to my taste i think not enough to the taste of the people mm. of amacha right not enough to the people who sit down and think about these things now mm. without sounding glib there are people who don't think about these things they go about life not really concerned about why the good die young or why the innocent seem to suffer and perhaps in as they say in the book perhaps the over-examined life is really not not is much harder to live or not or not worth living uh, living well, particularly it, while you, you are these. particularly while you are going through an experience while you're going through it
but historically yeah. speaking, then, of course, historically speaking, of course, uh, there were theological responses to uh, worldwide suffering. But beyond that, part of the Jewish response, beyond the philosophical theological, was a whole variety of practices, uh, folk practices, superstitious practices, and all types of other things that that entered to one degree or another, sometimes remaining on the periphery uh, Jewish life in different parts of the Gola. Uh, different sgulot, uh, lucky charms, as it were, to to ward off uh, things, things which uh, we modern uh, rationalists, we men and women of science, tend to look at with something of a jaundiced eye. Uh, but among the most bizarre responses to pandemics in the Jewish experience is one that you documented in again, in, in Traditions Winter 2021 issue, which is available in our archives at traditiononline.org. Of the plague wedding, the so-called Schwarzachassen, or the black wedding, which seems like something out of, of you know, early modern or medieval uh, Yiddish literature, uh, and as you document, appears in early modern Yiddish and early Hebrew literature. But in fact, in the month that COVID begins in March 2020 in the Ponovich Cemetery in Bnei Brak, one of these bizarre ceremonies is conducted and was widely reported on from the blogosphere to the New York Times and everything in between. So first of all, just tell us, for those that may be unfamiliar, what is the so-called plague wedding and how do you use it as a lens to understand something about Jewish response to, to pandemics? In many ways, this plague wedding is what one would call a sui genesis, right? That it's it's really a sort of a bria bifneatsmo. It's it's very hard to link this to other stuff that Jews do in response to pandemics, but it is a very important part of the story. Um, let me preface this by saying that um, in a survey done at Asafa Rofer Hospital about the use of talisman uh, in this in a pediatric intensive care unit, they found that 30% of the families whose children were in the pediatric ICU had either put a Rebbe picture in or uh, tied a red string around the incubator or done something that one would call a, 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 using a skula. 30% in a safar affair, and this was done in the early 2000s. Uh, so we still like to use these uh, these objects and by the way that was regardless they found the finding was regardless of the person's level of religious observance or socioeconomic status well although we uh, might put an asterisk there uh, jeremy as someone who has spent time in uh, neonatal uh, icus uh, and i consider myself a fairly fairly rationalist litvak like <laughs> like there being no atheist in a foxhole there right. is no there is no parent in a neonatal intensive care. Very few parents in neonatal intensive care who, who, who won't reach out for even the most outlandish ray of hope. So there are all types right. of sociological ways to understand this. Uh, yes, but, but yes, but I, I, and you're right, of course, that these are people whose children are desperately ill. But it is interesting, I think, that that a third of them would use these interventions. In any event, um, I had started researching the. The, the plague wedding, as it's most commonly called. Um, actually, when I uh, <laughs> I came across it as I was doing my research for the book on the great 
flu pandemic of 1918. Yeah, yeah. And, but and never and, imagining that this would resurface in contemporary Jewish life. I'd never heard of it. I'd never heard of it before 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 my research about five years ago. I was completely ignorant of it. And then you sort of start digging around, and I spent a long time on this. As, as you mentioned, it eventually became an article that I, I published in Tradition. Um, and you start digging around, and then I, I have written most much of the, the essay uh, before COVID began, and then all of a sudden, there's this plague wedding that, as you mentioned, that took place in the Ponovich uh, Cemetery in Bnei Brak. It's actually footage is captured by a drone, so you can you can have that as um, a link to image it from in within head. the article, right? And then you have this in the corner of a cemetery in, under a black canopy, a black chuppah with the few onlookers that there were literally standing beside fresh graves. This very young couple is married. And I was, in fact, I'd originally written the essay and I had tracked down what I thought was the last recorded Schwarzerkasten or plague wedding anywhere. It took place in, in during uh, the occupation of Zeklovich in 1942. And I had written that this is the last recorded plague wedding but it's not the, the one that happened 80 years on. later it comes back yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. what but is again, this the, well, the ceremony is what we take often it's a it's a it's a yatom and a yatoma two orphan yeah, we children take, um yeah we we take the, basically people who one might call the um the, the never cases of the community and they probably refer to them like that in in yiddish when they uh, when these things uh were undertaken fairly uh, frequently as they were, um, you take somebody, uh, an orphan, a, what somebody we might call now physically challenged, handicapped. In uh, in some of the uh, early Yiddish literature, these uh, uh, these words are translated as crippled. We don't use that word anymore. But but you take somebody who otherwise would have had a very hard time finding a shidduch, and the community would raise funds. It would um, it would march them down to the uh, to the to the outskirts of the cemetery, uh, where they were not coerced into this by any means, uh, where there would be a ceremony, they would get married, Kadas and Kadin. Uh, they were generally followed by a large celebration in which both the local Jews and often the local non-Jewish populations participated. And this was not uncommon. In fact, when I when I and, published and, it, book, and it was specifically done as a way of warding off the plague. Ward as a way of, of, of either ending an existing uh, pandemic, that, that was often very, very common, or, uh, or to, to protect the town against one that was sort of encroaching and creeping, certainly during the great cholera epidemics of the 19th century. Um, this was when it was done, but this wasn't rare. Uh, and this is what really uh, struck me that I, in, in my book, I have an appendix of at least 20 uh, examples of. Uh, of where a plague wedding is recorded in the memorial books, the Yiddish memorial books uh, that were published in Israel in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and there are firsthand accounts of this. I also discovered a children's cartoon book that is delightfully illustrated, which has the story of a plague wedding. And it took, like you would sit down, this kind of thing, like a Sesame Street book. It's a delightful story. It's beautifully illustrated. But at its core, as you said, story, fun for the whole family, <laughs> fun for the whole at its core. It's a story 
about a, a rabbi who's trying to head off a plague. So he invites people, he makes a plague wagging, and the town is saved from the cholera uh, epidemic that threatened it. So from something that I didn't know about, and I imagine many people <laughs> had not heard about, to a cartoon book that is available on the topic uh, was a big, uh, a long way to travel, but it was something that was very enlightening. I mean, the the fact that, for example, they were generally scenes of great frivolity is almost uh, is almost uncannily representative of them. There are, yeah, they were they were very rarely somber occasions. There's one or two that were mm -hmm. that were somber occasions, but uh, by and large, it was drink. Uh, there was frolicking. There were uh, there were jesters, and there were uh, people like who well, made like up any other like any other Eastern exactly. European Jewish wedding. What we might call today shtick. There was yeah. shtick at these weddings, and it's just you know remarkable to see people were not happy with it. There are recorded uh, incidents of the leaders of certain communities being very unhappy about this. Of course, the members of the Haskalah, when they heard about these and saw how sure, was, how often right they were for, practiced. For either critique or satire. Yes, very, very uh, upset yeah. about it. You pointed me to Agnon's book on a short yeah. story yeah. about, about in, this. In Shalom Aleichem, in Agnon, and in other writers that are documenting that time and that place, it makes appearances as part of the... Yeah, the, and when the, we... The when cultural we, realities of the... Yeah, and when we there. try to understand the... Um, like, what is this all? What are the profound? Where does this come from? It's actually very, very hard. So Sefer Tamim has some has some vague reasons, but the best that I can come up with uh, uh, is that in somehow this was a way of saying to God, look, we're marrying off the Nebuch people in our community, right? These elderly people, these people who have diseases that don't or physical handicaps that don't enable these, them to get married or very poor. With these orphans, this is what we're doing for our for our most threatened population. Why don't you, God, do the same for all of us? Right. That's, I think, the closest right. explanation well, in, the, in, the, in the Kabbalistic notion of the theurgic that our actions here can force God's hand above. Can force God's but hand, uh, the fact uh, that you uh, were working on this piece of research, and then in the most unlikely way, it comes back into the contemporary realities of Jewish life, no matter how, no matter how marginal it may have been, you know, was certainly just uh, one of those uh, curious really uh, facts would, of how I when you really start looking would, uh, at something, it, it tends to pop up at you. No, I really would recommend that for those of you who have not seen this, you uh, look at the link in the article or just Google a uh, plague wedding, uh, you know, 2020 or something like that, you will find the clip very... And, and, uh, and in your survey of Jewish responses, from, as we discussed earlier, the theological, philosophical, uh, to bolstering acts of charity and kindness and, and uh, you know, simple support for those that are suffering to the more outlandish. This is certainly on the on the furthest extreme. It was a chapter, yes. again, that appeared in tradition and is uh, collected here as the seventh chapter of of the 11th plague. But I would be remiss if I didn't point out that you are sitting in your office at the National Institute of Health. Uh, in or near the nation's capital, where you work as a physician and a, and a scientist. And earlier in our conversation, you made a critique of what you see as the kind of uh, failure of Jewish theological response during COVID. Um, but how do we do on the science? As a religious community, uh, uh, 
uh, you know, looking back over the past three years, uh, how do you how do you feel that uh, the Jewish community, the Orthodox community, did in terms of you know working with with the science, which of course is something that's you know you fellows and your scientific method uh, are, are <laughs> very well known that uh, it's less significant how much we get it right exactly right now. It's our commitment to getting it right moving forward and to, yes, and to, to learning less as we wrong. go along. So, you know, this question of faith and reason of Torah and science or Torah or Mada or choose your choose your slogan. Uh, it's just something we discuss, uh, you know, in many different contexts. Uh, very recently here at Tradition, we've been giving a lot of attention to questions of uh, Torah Mada and how the humanities are faring in our community. But here, Torah Mada Mada with a capital Mem, science. Uh, how do you see the the test case of COVID uh, as a way of understanding where where things stand in the relationship between those two sides of the vavachibur, the connecting yes, the, and I mean the question that you're asking, Jeff, is really um, you can't characterize the entire Jewish community's response as one thing or another. There were um, within communities very different responses. The conservative movement pivoted to online services in a, and was very, very machmir, if you like, about uh, staying out of, of places that congregate uh, people closely. So they went all online, even those conservative shuls where generally they frown upon that kind of thing. Um, and then you had orthodox communities in which shuls were closed down. You had orthodox communities in which nobody cared and shuls were as packed as ever. Uh, you And we really responded, I think, along the um, the spectrum uh, of the society around us. There is, uh, we, we, we did as a community, as different communities, uh, we did what people do. Some respond wholeheartedly to the, the science and let's not forget the vaccine was created in record time. I was interviewed at the beginning of the pandemic and predicted that a vaccine would probably take somewhere in the order of eight to 10 years because you know what? That's how long vaccines have That's taken to, takes, get, yeah. to get produced and, and marketed and have all the safety studies done. Um, and, you know, it was it was done in a fraction of that time. So, you know, we had communities that embraced that. I have a chapter in the book that touches upon the Jewish anti-vaxxer movement uh, mm -hmm. called The Right to Die. That's the title of the, of the mm -hmm. chapter, which I'm kind of proud of, The Right to Die. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I go into a great uh, detail of... Uh, uh, I go into great detail about the Jewish anti-vaxxer movement and, and to, to, to just make one very quick point along that. Um, what I discovered, again, much to my amazement, because I went in with this not knowing deeply the literature, um, not knowing the, the uh, difference between the post-game in Israel and the post-game in, in, in North America and elsewhere, um, I discovered that anti-vaxxers in, in that movement, there is no such thing as a Jewish anti-vaxxer. There's an anti-vaxxer who happens to be Jewish. There's an anti-vaxxer who happens to be Christian. There's an anti-vaxxer who happens to be Muslim. Even, even, though, even though some of those people are advancing their ideas in the name of their religion. Absolutely. Each one of those sections does, each one of those communities does that. But it struck me that the, the, the literature that there is on when people talk to, to anti-vaxxers uh, across different societies 
is very similar. You know, they, they generally strike the similar socioeconomic groups. They generally, again, we're making big generalizations, but generally anti-vaxxers can be found much to a much greater degree in fundamentalist religious groups. So one might think that would be the ultra-Orthodox or right-wing Haredi movement. It would also be the uh, uh, the Pentecostalists or the or, or their equivalent in in in, in, uh, in the Christian movement. And certainly there are uh, there are um, post-gaming amongst the Muslim community who have outlawed the uh, COVID vaccine. Uh, and again, they find that they find support in their body of religious literature. So none of these people are really, uh, uh, I, there isn't a Christian uh, uh, anti-vaxxer. There's an anti-vaxxer who happens to be a devout Christian. And um, that's, and I, and I think when I realized this, it actually made me feel a whole lot better because I'm sure that many of us feel some discomfort at the, at the behavior and at the um, responses to the vaccination amongst certain members of the community, both here uh, and in Israel. Uh, and across the world, in Melbourne and in Manchester and in Miami, it didn't really matter where. Um, but once I realized that this is not a defining feature of their Judaism, it's a defining feature of who they are as an anti-vaxxer, mm-hmm. then it made it all rather more palatable. I don't know if that makes sense uh, to you. A but bug it, rather it, than a feature of... Uh... Yes. And also, you know, you can... Uh, I suspect that, an, that a, uh, that a fraud, uh anti-vaxxer probably... Ha- is going to have a lot more in common with a devout fundamentalist Christian than they may have with somebody else within their own community who doesn't share perhaps the same core fundamental beliefs. Mm-hmm. So that is a, a sort of a, a longer way of saying that, you know, we as, as a community across the world, we as a people across the world, reacted in all kinds of ways, some of which I think we can all agree we should be very proud of, mm-hmm. um, and some of which were actually fringeful and uh, one wish that they would never happen, but such is life. I think that's a good time to turn our attention back to the oncoming uh, Passover preparations we must all be doing and to dig out those 10 plague uh, finger puppets and uh, to move away from the suffering the world experienced these past three years to a time where we can once again think about these things, both with a bit of bit of whimsy allowed only by distance, but also by the uh, the very serious, uh, again, uh, philosophical, theological, historical, scientific uh, uh, insights that are gleaned from reading Dr. Jeremy Brown's The Eleventh Plague, Jews and Pandemics from the Bible to COVID-19, freshly, uh, freshly supplied to us from Oxford University Press, and to visit traditiononline.org, where you can sample the original edition of the chapter on the rather bizarre but fascinating nonetheless plague wedding uh dr jeremy brown thank you very much and hug samer to you and all of thank our thank you thank you hug samer to all of our to all of the listeners have a happy and a kosher pesa and healthy <laughs> Amazing.